Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ying Ang's work is about an active and conscious looking. She grapples with political and social issues that often alter the landscape of our mind in challenging, isolating and revelatory ways. Through an unflinching exploration, she traverses pushing at the boundaries of process, materiality and the self, crafting remarkable works fueled by the type of interior rage that we've seen harnessed as political fuel in so many social movements throughout history. So there's this big churn of emotions. I'm trying to understand what it is. It's largely angry. Um, I'm not sure why it is that I'm so mad and I really have to do the deep dive and to try and figure out what those answers are. I'm Jen Fletcher and this is the Messy Truth Conversations on Photography. Ying Ang is a photographer and author with an extensive exhibition history and client base. She's published two artist books, Gold Coast, a study of the contradictions rife in one of Australia's tourist capitals, and The Quickening, that explores the transformation and lived experience of a woman in a journey of motherhood grappling with postpartum depression and anxiety. She is also the director of Reflections 2.0, a space for visual artists in Melbourne, where she currently lives with her family. So we've talked before about your personal experience growing up in Australia and how formative that was for you within your creative work and your personal identity and how part of that was you cultivating this outsider persona, which I think a lot of artists and creative people generally can relate to. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about this and how photography helped mediate your life at that time. Well, I suppose photography didn't really mediate that time in my life rather than provide a framework for me to approach the world that really started to make sense to me. So growing up in Australia, I'm I'm Singaporean, I'm Chinese Singaporean. I moved to Australia when I was about 10. So I had gotten a sense of my cultural identity in Singapore already at that point and I had a cultural assumption of what Australia was going to be before I moved here you know I was very much looking forward to I had this fantasy in my head that suddenly I was going to learn how to surf and I'd have all these you know blonde surfer friends and live sort of this typically outdoor western centric life and when I moved here you know what I ended up encountering for a large part of my struggles here was intense racism and I felt very much um, on the outer in terms of being able to assimilate to cultural life in Australia and I think that you know sort of looking back on it and and reading a little bit about it being a third culture kid this is quite a common experience you know where you're born from a from a certain culture and then you're raised in another culture and you're kind of living one foot in each camp. And what it does is 
it sort of makes you feel like an outsider across all aspects. So I felt like a little bit of an outsider at home and when I went back to Singapore because I was living in Australia and I had obviously assimilated to a certain extent and taken on Australian traits. Um, I speak with an Australian accent. My Singaporean friends still think that I fake this accent uh, because (laughs) I'm able to switch between accents quite easily and I never felt really Australian either. So it really put me in the position of being an observer without a true sense of belonging. And I suppose I just sort of carried this through my life for a very long time thinking that this was, you know, this was just who I was and the world didn't really fit that well on me with that framework. I just, I didn't feel like I really belonged anywhere and I didn't quite understand it and I didn't feel very comfortable in that place because I didn't understand it. And it wasn't really until I found photography where, you know, I lifted the camera to my face and suddenly the way that I felt was completely justified. And I found that my observer status had a reason um, and I was able to use that way of seeing to tell stories and to talk about different perspectives that I had on living in Australia, growing up on the Gold Coast, the culture there. And it probably informed the way that I approached my second book in the way that I saw motherhood, you know, in the face of in the face of motherhood rhetoric in popular culture, my experience was very different. And I sort of sat outside of that a lot as well, observing from the outside and trying to speak about it from that perspective. When did you realise that the world you occupy, kind of your individual experience or metabolization of that experience could be art? I never really considered myself an artist in photography well into my career. So I started in 2002 to perhaps um, just taking photographs, getting better at what I was doing, just, you know, being self-taught and experimenting. And then a friend um, who owned a fashion store asked me if I would photograph their campaign, which, you know, I said yes to. I mean, it was a small town. There weren't very many photographers around. So a, a lot of these opportunities just sort of fell in my lap. And I, by default, became a commercial photographer because, you know, at what point do you consider yourself a professional? And as a young photographer, I thought it was what I got paid for. So therefore, I was a commercial photographer. And I was doing that for about seven years um, and realized that I didn't, I went to New York and um, I was at a fashion party. And um, I just felt really, I felt like I was in the wrong place. Um, And yet I was surrounded by people working in the same industry that I was who were at the top of their careers. And I just couldn't see myself there in 30 years. So I sort of reevaluated what I was doing and applied to go to ICP and then went back into social issues again. And I say went back into social issues because when I started photography, I was actually I did a postgraduate in political science and I was actually working in a conflict resolution centre between religious groups. And so I was always social issue focused as a person. Um, And then I became a photographer and then I kind of forgot where my drive was because I, you know, like I said, I had that default 
position as a commercial photographer. So I decided to go back to my roots, do documentary photography, and I was freelancing, still am freelancing as a photojournalist, but it wasn't until I was probably 30, 31, um, nearly 10 years into shooting before I realised that I really needed to use my tools to speak about something that was dogging me, something that was burning me that I didn't understand, and to use those tools to try and understand those issues inside me that I really needed to explore and interrogate. And I suppose that, does that make me an artist? You know, does that make make my work art? I mean, I suppose if it's a yes, then that's the point, you know, where I switched over, so to speak. I had no idea you did conflict resolution. That's so interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, you you grow up feeling comfortable with being able to see things from all perspectives and having one foot in each camp. It kind of makes that role make sense, I suppose. Yeah, I can see that totally. So you mentioned before your latest book, The Quickening, such a powerful book. People would have heard me talk about it before. Uh, I absolutely love it. It's one of those books that you can just go back to again and again and have such different experiences with it. Uh, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how that work began. I've only published two major books and both of them began with intense confusion and a big dose of, I want to say rage, but it was more tempered than that. Um, A big dose of a hardened anger uh, that fueled my desire to understand more about what it was that I was feeling. So, you know, I felt very blindsided when I became a mother um, and the project itself started from a much earlier place it started from a place where I was trying to understand what it meant to have a home to create a home and to create a family because I lived a nomadic life for many many years which probably started from feeling like an outsider and therefore choosing the life of an outsider and then I just got really tired and I really wanted to make a home for myself the way that I saw other normal people making a home for themselves so I actually began the book with a project called Bowerbird Blues, which is the prologue of the book. And it's just, it's um, the smaller section that's sewn on the front of the major book block. And it's a prologue to the book um, because that was a period where I photographed this slow piecing together of what I thought having a home meant, which was Again, a um, very concerted, very anxious and conscious looking at the place that I had decided to settle down in, which was Melbourne, Um, not my native town in Australia. I was getting to know this place. I was getting to know the people and I was getting to know it via my hustle blood. And then I got married to the man that I was dating while I was photographing Bowerbird Blues and got pregnant immediately. And then was suddenly keenly aware of everything changing around me and within me. So it became no longer a conscious piecing together of what home is. It 
became a bodily experience of a home making itself around me in a way that I felt I had no control over, um, accelerated by the actual birth of the child. And I was just shooting it the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) It's really interesting to me that you mentioned rage because I actually wanted to ask you about rage. And and I think we're both coming to this using the term rage in its most sort of vital sense rather Mm. than a particularly like violent take on it. But I think women's rage has been political fuel in so many movements throughout history and and that's the sort of rage that I'm talking about it for me resonates in this project as one facet of the project you know so much of what you unpick in the in the book and in the in the wider project is urgent political work that we need to be talking about in society and you're doing this through metabolizing your own experiences as you just described I think so much for me of what the book speaks to is these broader systemic issues around the visibility of motherhood in society and how women's lives shift and how that is integrally built into systems of power and value and money and sex and so much more. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I hesitate to use the word rage because, you know, it has a lot of connotations, but it is more tempered uh, than those connotations. And I absolutely feel that the systemic imbalances when it comes to the expectations of women versus the expectations of men in and outside of family life were largely responsible um, for the rage that I felt when I was moving through this journey of be- uh, from being a complete lone wolf that had rejected largely any sort of social norms when it came to settling down, getting married, having a child, and th- and, pro- and probably getting used to the idea that this was normal, that the way that I was living was normal and that as a woman, you know, I, I did encounter obviously systemic sexism as I travelled. However, I felt largely unscathed by it in my personal life. And then I felt like once I stepped into that framework, once I once I decided that once I proposed to my partner, I felt like I butted up against it. The sheer shock of the fact that I was the one proposing as a female, the the um the mantle, the the cloak of um, traditional expectations of what it means to a woman fell hard on my shoulders from that moment on and absolutely solidified once I had a child. made me very angry because I felt like I, I, I had forgotten that perhaps this was something, this was something that was relevant, you know, that was going to happen to me and it did. One of the things that I really love about the book, which you're kind of touching on there, is how it sort of speaks to the recalibration of self as a woman who becomes a parent, a mother, and and how it's so much more than the physical realities of birth and caring for a newborn baby, which I don't want to underestimate in any way because that mm-hmm. is a slog. But it, it's all it's this 
is this sort of mental recalibration, how the landscape of your mind changes that I found particularly resonant in your work, which I don't see much of across, you know, photography generally. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your experience of this and, and how how you went about kind of articulating that through your photography. Well, I suppose this is sort of, the, this sort of relates directly to uh, my process, right? So there's this big churn of emotions. I'm trying to understand what it is. It's largely angry. Um, I'm not sure why it is that I'm so mad. And I really have to do the deep dive and to try and figure out what those answers are. And um, in that um, hypothesis of the book, I discovered I discover a few things. One of those things is the term matricence, which is becoming thankfully more and more popular um, in describing this transition from womanhood to motherhood, where it encapsulates not just the physical change, which is something that is illustrated and talked about a lot, uh, you know, in, in motherhood rhetoric, but the mental and emotional landscape completely changes also. I mean, hormonally we completely change. Hormonally, even though we change and it's incredibly complex, it's only ever talked about in terms of mood swings um, Mm. and in a sort of joking, um, teasing sort of way without without ever addressing the um, single-line tunnel vision focus that you have on your child and an inability to focus on anything else when they're around. There's so much that's fed through your body physiologically, proximity to the premature mammal that you've since birthed. You know, I mean, we humans give birth prematurely as mammals because we evolved to walk on two feet, you know, so we can't hold the child in our bellies for as long as, mammals on all fours so we give birth prematurely and that's why our young need to be fed and nursed and carried for so long before they can get up and walk by themselves as opposed to horses Mm. and there's a reason that we feel the way that we do and there's a reason why our minds completely change because the survival of this being is so dependent on the mother And I just didn't understand how incredibly complex all of this was. I didn't understand how rigged my body was to ensure the survival of this child um, and how much that would take over everything in my life. And I, I was really upset about the fact that there was so little information out there and I was digging so much and I could find hardly anything that um, gave me a broad and um, comprehensive understanding of what I was going through. And it comes down to very, very simple factors. One, the default human body in medical science is the male body. So what we actually know about what happens to women through pregnancy, through postpartum process, about breastfeeding, all of that stuff is, you know, relegated to the realms of um, either comedy or um hushed female like women's circles let alone let alone support partners in heteronormative relationships you know there's it's it feels like the blind leading the blind a lot of the time Mm. in those situations and I was really mad about that and then I was also mad about the fact that in art um which is obviously my realm in art 
artists have mined for, you know, the beginning of this idea of art, the most poignant, the most transformative um, moments and periods in humanity. So, you know, when we fall in love, when we experience death and grief, heartbreak, all these things, it's so rich in art. And it's rich in art because it helps us really understand and comprehend things that are very, very difficult to simplify. Motherhood is very thin on the ground in that respect. And for me, that's a political issue. You know, um, a lot of women, a lot of female artists were in the in the emancipation of of womanhood. A lot of women gave up the notion of traditional female lives um, in order to move further ahead in patriarchal industries, art being one of those things. So a lot of female artists didn't have children or if they did, they didn't really want to talk about it. There's a lot of shame still in photography and a lot of secrecy when women have babies. You know, a lot of there's a lot of fear that they won't get hired anymore, that they won't get taken seriously anymore. And all of that stuff sort of fueled my urge to <laughs> speak up. <laughs> I think there are a couple of points here. One, I actually wanted to ask you about what it's been like for you working in the industry as a new mother who is out. <laughs> because as you say, like so many of us, I mean, I certainly hid my pregnancy up until when I couldn't hide it anymore due to fear of work. And I wondered now, you know, it's been a few years since you had your children. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what, how you're finding it now. I'm finding that work has still been coming to me. So I, I've experienced more success since having a child professionally than I did prior to having a child. I'm not entirely sure whether it would have come anyway. I think that the fact that I made a work out of it, a project out of it that was successful probably influenced that change in my career, much to my surprise, really. I'm, I do think that it's very, very important, though, to rethink what it means to be a working mother because the expectation to be a working mother, um, it, a brand-new mother, let's say, say, let's say six weeks on, um, still breastfeeding, you you, you want to start working again and you want to start travelling again, which requires a big logistical sort of plan where, you know, you're pumping on the road, you know, you're, you're freezing milk before you, hit, before you hit the road. There's all of this stuff that you have to think about and it does sort of affect your time management and, the, and how long you can actually be out shooting for before you need to find a space where you can sit down for 20 minutes to pump milk. You know, there's there's all of this stuff that affects how you work as a new mother. And I think that to for you for you to expect yourself to work the same as you did before you became a mother is unrealistic. And I think there needs to be a broader recognition and understanding from the world at large from your 
employers to also understand that this is fine and this is realistic and this is normal. And if you want women in the workplace as much as you want men in the workplace, then this is what life looks like as opposed to uh, devaluing um, that, that space for new mothers to work. You're part of a community of birthing bodies who are talking about these issues in photography, which is really generative. And it's been really fantastic to see this work over the last couple of years in particular. Um, I wondered what your personal take is on seeing more visual storytelling emerging and seeing more discussion around this, these experiences. Do you think we're moving in the right direction? Mm -hmm. It feels strange to see it, to be honest. Um, I feel incredibly grateful that there are more voices, more stories around the plurality of the motherhood experience because obviously there are so many different versions of it and it's incredibly relative to your individual circumstances and where you're from and your your personal your culture, your personal values, you know, everything changes based on all those variables. So I would like to see more stories and I would like to see a greater plurality in the storytelling around motherhood. I do still find it strange though and, like, that's the bias that I've inherited and I think it's important for me to sit with those feelings too and to recognise those feelings, including the feelings of shame around my work. I was embarrassed to make the work. I, One of the reasons that, well, I mean, there are many reasons why they're handmade and they're in a low run, but definitely one of the reasons that I wanted to do a small run was because I wasn't sure how many people I wanted to have their hands on this book. I wasn't sure how long I wanted to sit with this story for because I self-published. So I have to work on this book and tell this story many times over after the book itself is made, um, I wasn't sure how long I could do it for. So if I did a small run, I knew that I could get it over and done with really quickly. I'm five months from publishing and I've got 19 copies left and I know that this journey will end very soon. So, you know, there's a reason I did that and that's because I'm still not used to this space feeling valid. Mm even though I know intellectually it is, but the feelings around it are still totally biased. And so, yeah, it's mixed, you know. I, I, I'm grateful and I think it's important, but every time I see it, I still feel surprised. Well, there's a flattening, right, in terms of some of these issues. They can get flattened and become like just singularly looked at through the lens of representation. Mm-hmm rather than, you know, the myriad of complexities and political and social issues that mm-hmm. this is all entrenched in. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that always makes me pause, because once you start talking about this, and, you know, I've talk, I, I love to write about work like yours, I've been part of panels, I've written about my own experience having children, uh, you, you do, you know, there's that constant fear of getting typecast, and you become one of those women and you can hear the internalized misogyny in me saying those women because yeah that's the that's way society at. yeah that's where we're at and that's what we're trying to navigate now in this situation where we want to you know it we've 
I think you and I are united in the way we feel like it's imperative for us to use whatever platform we have to talk about these messy issues and and to get into some of this and share our experiences because we both went through that period of feeling like what the fuck why did nobody why was nobody talking about this but then you're constantly you know having to navigate the bias and the systemic issues rooted in our industry about what is important and what is valid and what deserves time which is inherently completely you know centered on the patriarchy despite how far we've come and so it, it is so tricky I find you know you get those emails asking you to be on a panel talking about this and it's so hard not to just be like Yes, yes, and yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, because yeah. yeah, you're sort of you're sort of battling a lot. And one of the things that I found quite interesting about watching how your book has been reviewed is really looking at the nuances of who's reviewing it, what are their what are their experiences to do with parenthood and, and the different takes based on that. I found that so fascinating. Me too. There are so many um areas of photography and art that could be representative of this journey in the sense that um, let's talk about, um, well, relative to my first book, Gold Coast, the idea of suburbia. So, you know, the Gold Coast is essentially a book that interrogates the reason why a place that is the crime capital of Australia is also the tourist capital of Australia and how those two identities can coexist in this one place um, and the reasons that they coexist in the ones in, in this one place. Um, and it's rooted in suburbia and this idea of selling this perfect dream of a life despite the realities of what's actually going on. So, you know, the, when suburbia started to happen um, and more and more people started to feel uncomfortable with it and artists started to question it you know there is there is a huge huge genre of photography um that is centered around suburbia however nobody says oh you know you're that you're that kind of a photographer you just focus on suburbia Mm -hmm. because you're actually saying something about it suburbia is the landscape and you have to say something. And I think this is where, you know, we, we people haven't yet started to recognise the nuances of motherhood because that whole area has been painted with such broad brushstrokes and people have gotten so used to that that I, if you look at my book um, and you don't read the book, you don't actually read the book and you just scan it, it could easily be just the landscape motherhood you know you have to read it to understand what I'm saying about motherhood Mm. and I suppose that's where my hope is you know that that we we will see many many different stories about this um, addressing many many different issues about it and we will come to understand this incredibly complex and multi-dimensional experience you're listening to The Messy Truth, conversations on photography. I wanted to actually ask you about censorship because I think self-censorship is a big part of some of these issues that we're talking about. And I want, you know, I've definitely found myself doing this, like when I mentioned before, when I've written about motherhood, like sometimes I hold back because I'm I'm nervous about 
saying how I really feel or perhaps a shame there of admitting the struggle in whatever way that manifested and I wondered if that's something that you felt making the work or how you sort of navigated that sort of impulse to self-censor. I've felt that about 12 times already just doing this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So mm, yes (laughs) I, I haven't when I say I felt it, as in I felt the moment where I thought I should have not said it that way. I should have sugarcoated it a little bit. I should have been less mad, less confused, less, whatever, you know, typical to perhaps the way many women feel about the way that they've um, approached their motherhood journey. You know those really bad days that you have with your kid and you're like, why was I so short-tempered or why was I so frustrated or why was, you know, uh, I should be enjoying this, I should be embracing this, you know, this time only ever comes once, blah, blah, blah. And you just get into your own head about this riddle of what should and should not have happened and the way you should and should not have dealt with it. And um, I suppose what I tried to do was to not censor but to edit carefully. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has to be done quite precisely. And the way that it's done precisely is to is akin to writing a thesis, which is the way that I like to approach my long form works is to have this very, very um, precise and short hypothesis that I've come to after all of the research and after making the project or the bulk of the project. And then streamlining um, the content and the way that it's put together and the design and all of those elements that comes to making the book into supportive documentation to the hypothesis. So it's not necessarily censoring, um, but I am choosing what I put in it to support the essence of what I'm trying to say. And if it doesn't support it and if it's gratuitous, then I take it out. You know, th- there are some photographs that I knew would have, you know, that kind of, you know, like a big cesarean scar. I mean, you know, it's quite powerful because it's visceral and it's quite violent and it does speak directly to the, catal- you know, the catalyst that that is at the very centre of the book, you know, the, the birth. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day... It felt kind of gratuitous without necessarily speaking to the journey and almost overshadowed the journey in that way. So I'm not sure if that counts as censoring or, you know, just, I think, careful editing. You mentioned Gold Coast there, which is a really incredible project that you worked on. And one thing I wanted to ask you about is actually this transition from that project to to this project that we're talking about because for me there is a real sense of letting go in in this work in the quickening and the materiality of photography which has always been present in your work but it feels like it's really heightened in the quickening there's this really clever use of texture and tactility which really heightens the emotional sort of sensation of the work and I wondered if that was something you were particularly cognizant of or whether it just kind of happened organically. No, it was definitely something I was conscious of. I mean, it's a maybe eight-year gap between right. the two. I mean, I wait, I published Goldfest in 2014. Yeah, so about an eight-year gap. And um, 
the Gold Coast book was, you know, for lack of a better analogy, the first album, you know, it was the one that where as a young artist I felt like I had a lot to prove. It is um, it is evident in the fact that I had to shoot everything six by six um, in a very rigid frame. It was a hardcover. It was an edition of 800. I needed to make, I was making my first photo book and I needed it to be taken seriously. And so a lot of the t- decisions that I made from even just starting the project in the first place all the way to the very end was um, a lot of pressure that I put on myself to operate at a high level in my head or, you know, what I considered to be a high level at that time. And, you know, 10 years of water under the bridge and I am a very different photographer now. I'm much more comfortable in my skin I struggle a lot less with imposter syndrome. I very seldom struggle with that now, actually, and it's mostly because I've discovered uh, my voice as a photographer. I know how I want to speak, and um, this was very much me speaking freely the way that I photographed this book and the way that I made this book. It it definitely felt risky. I wasn't sure that um, it would land in the same way that the Gold Coast book landed professionally but on the other hand I also felt like the experience itself of becoming a mother was so visceral and so much um, something that was felt so much more than thought Mm -hmm. I wanted the book and the work in the book to reflect something similarly so I tried not to be too much in my head and I tried really to just be with how I felt about something and to photograph it in that way and to just move with that. Now that there's been a bit of distance since you making the work and even a bit of distance since you published the book, how are you feeling about the project now? I'm feeling a lot of relief for the most part. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, you know, I mean, the I suppose... It's somewhat contradictory, right, because on one hand I say that I was more confident in this work because I'm more confident in myself as an artist. Uh, However, I was also a lot more nervous about this book because with the Gold Coast book I was holding myself up to particular parameters that I'd seen before in photography, that I'd seen before in books, and I understood that it was of a high quality across those understood and visible parameters whereas this book doesn't really have that you know it's photographed in a myriad of different ways with a bunch of different cameras the only thing that ties it together is my point of view and my style you know which isn't isn't something that the industry at large is able to recognize and say okay so that's good photography because I've seen that kind of photography many times before and Um, it's widely recognised as what it means to be good. The same as the book object itself, you know, it's French fold, hand-bound with a chaotic stitch. It's got one smaller book that's sewn on top of a larger book. It's quite complicated as an object. I didn't know how 
that would land as well to a wider audience, whether it would be too fussy, overly designed, um, whether the design would speak too loudly over the photographs, over the content of the actual book. You know, there there were a lot of risks and so I was nervous about it but approaching it with a sense of confidence that I suppose could have only come after the experience, you know, after eight years of experience from the first one. So right now I'm relieved that it has spoken to people, that it's spoken to people that are not just women who have had babies. Mm. That that was really important for me as well because, you know, we the call to action from this book is to is a call to the tribe, is a call to the support partners, it's a call to the people that are in the network around the nexus of the mother um, to help to understand for people to be seen in this experience. You know, postpartum anxiety and depression is a very, very difficult thing to go through. And like any other mental health crisis, to be seen and to be understood through it can sometimes make all the difference, especially from support partners, from people, from from what has now become in the sort of modern West, I suppose, a two-person, a two-person journey mm. in raising children. And if that one, if the other person doesn't understand what the mother's going through, then you know, you're really, you're really on struggle street. <laughs> yeah. You also run a gallery called Reflections in Melbourne. What's it like juggling that role alongside your role as a photographic artist? Well, I run that space as, as I suppose you would imagine that a photographer would run it. I'm really only interested in the work and the stories, which is probably not great for, you know, the people who I represent because um, I'm not the way that I would woo a patron has very little to do with um, champagne and canapes, I suppose, but it's more regaling them (laughs) with stories, (laughs) with things that I find important and inspiring. And, you know, the the way that space started, I suppose it's more of an artist-run space rather than a formal gallery, but the the way that it started um, was because, I, in my um, inherent and much hated bias, when I became pregnant, I thought that my career was going down the toilet. And so I thought that, ah, well, you know, I'm living in Melbourne now. It's very, very far away from New York where I was living. Um, I'm pregnant. I'm married. What am I going to do here that's going to keep me going creatively, mentally? Um, when it's not going to be making pictures because that that part of my life is probably over. So I built the gallery, you know, the, the idea to sort of bring the old world that I came from into this new world that I was currently living. Ironically and happily, it didn't turn out to be the case with my career. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I still run the space in a similar way. I never really worked successfully in a vacuum. In the years that I was a photographer, 
before moving to New York when I was living on the Gold Coast and there weren't, I didn't have any peers to bounce ideas off, you know, and it was just the internet and just like yelling out into this abyss and hoping for an echo back. I, I didn't grow very much and I didn't grow very fast and it wasn't until I had found a network and a professional tribe which obviously quickly became a personal tribe that I began to accelerate in progress across all aspects of my creative life and um, the gallery was a way for me to do that as well you know I sort of jokingly jokingly half jokingly talk about my you know one of the reasons being being that my I thought my career was over but mostly it was because I also really wanted to create a space that I could have a hub around me of people that you know because we ran a residency um, and well at the time an overseas residency where I could invite people who I love whose work I adore and what you know to come over and to work and to make a show for a month and to give back to the community here in Australia and have a cross-cultural exchange where they could run a couple of workshops um, you know and we could give to each other that's the way that I work best in New York as well so I thought that perhaps it was something that I could also do in Melbourne um, I just don't work well on my own, really. Well, it's a really great space and it's such a vice, like you said, that sort of cross-collaboration is so, it's just so important now more than ever, I think, after all of this isolation, you really notice how much being in community is integral to how we work as creatives. Yeah, because I think that if you're in a cross-disciplinary um, environment where um, the medium becomes secondary and the ideas become primary, that's where things start to get really exciting. Because I think that if you're overly focused on also just being around photographers and talking photography, that your ideas and your vision can become somewhat cannibalised. I think Mm. it's important to stay outside of that realm a little bit as well. So I have some quick fire questions for you. How do you deal with self-doubt? I usually... um, surround myself with yes men (laughs) yes women (laughs) (laughs) one honest answer that's when I'm feeling doubtful um when I'm feeling strong I am able to access um more critical peers (laughs) but usually (laughs) if I just need if I just need the strength to move on I definitely am just speaking to people who I know can deliver that strength to me I love that it's very, very true. <laughs> what does success look like for you? Success, for many years I thought success was um, to be able to be paid to do something that I loved. That's still, I suppose, a part of it, but it's becoming reframed more into whether what I'm leaving behind is of any importance. It's more about legacy now rather than survival. And what does art enable you to do? (laughs) Other than catharsis? um, Or rage. (laughs) Right, dealing with rage. Um, (laughs) I think it allows me to 
be a combination of things that I really love, you know, that I really enjoy. It's a it's a really hedonistic um, pursuit in a way. You know, I get to make beautiful things. You know, I get to be a philosopher. I get to be an academic. I get to wallow in ideas for a long time, you know, which is a real luxury. You know, there, there are lots of people with lots of great ideas and thoughts that sort of flicker through their minds frequently through the day but don't actually have a sanctioned reason to sit with it for a long time and to round it out and understand it and to then deliver it to an audience and to see a response. I think that that is an incredible way to live. Has there been anything you've had to unlearn along the way throughout your career? Yeah, I had to, un- I suppose I did have to unlearn what success meant because it. the idea of success probably began centred more around what the, an industry thought about me. So, you know, g- getting getting paid and being financially, having photography be sort of a financially viable career is one thing, but the idea that, uh, you know, the idea of rising to the top of your profession, that means something different to me now. You know, I used to, I think I'm quite an ambitious person um, and I used to be very hungry to be the best, whatever that was. But I think that the best in my head was more so about um, an industry vetted best as opposed to the best at what I could do and what I could deliver, which is more the way that I'm geared now than before. So I definitely had to unlearn that. Do you think photographs still have the power to shift thinking and consciousness? I've actually been thinking about this consciously recently, the last (laughs) few days. I think that throughout the history of photography, we have a concept of the photograph as evidence We have this association with photography as evidence, which ties it strongly to history. And given that truth, all of the photography that has existed before um, in our collective visual archive, um, it tells a story. It's our sort of modern version of the finger painting on the cave walls. Um, however, moving forward, you know, so much of photography is no longer conventionally captured or, or treated the same way. So there's a lot of photography now that, um, where images are conjured moving forward, you know, even self-representation, you know, talking about, um, the selfie and this strange phenomena of people getting plastic surgery to look more like the faces that they see when they're filtering through Instagram. So if that becomes truth, then what history will collect will not actually be representative of reality. And once that becomes understood, does the photograph then lose power as evidence? Um, And my answer would be, Yes, for the moment. <laughs> <laughs> it's a complicated subject. It is a complicated um, subject. Sorry. <laughs> I've been thinking a lot about it, which is probably why I'm, when I'm in a rant about it. <laughs> no, I love it. It's great. 
It's really important. To finish up, I wanted to ask you the question that I ask everybody at the end of the show, and that's what matters more to you, the process of making the work or the final photograph or the final product? Maybe the final product. I think that the Gold Coast work was born off the back of post-traumatic stress. The quickening was born off the back of postpartum anxiety. Um. They were both very, very difficult things to experience. I'm now making a new work that doesn't, that is not driven by personal crisis and I'm really enjoying it. And I think that if that work, and I believe that that work is also important um, and given that the process is entirely different, um, I could probably say that the process is incidental to what you leave behind. Interesting. I can't wait to see the new work. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was so great to talk to you. Thank you so much, Jim, for having me. Thanks for listening to The Messy Truth. You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes. Theme music is changed by Judd Greenstein from the album Awake and design is by Ruby White. You can follow updates on the podcast on my Instagram at Jem Fletcher or subscribe to my newsletter at jemfletcher.com. Feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts.